Thanks for listening to another episode of The Weekly Podcast. Please go into show notes, help support the show. Uh, find us on Instagram, Twitter, send us an email, uh, subscribe, leave a review. This week we're going to talk about the Summerton Man. And the Summerton Man is a very, very, very famous case. It's been on every TV show, History Channel just done a thing about it. And it's very, very intriguing. It's the mysterious man of Summerton Beach. Now, the young couple taking an evening walk along Summerton Beach didn't think much of the man they saw lying on the sand with his head propped up against the old seawall. For this man appeared drowsy. He, he was lethargic. He raised his right arm and then dropping it back into his lap limply. They assumed he was just catching the last of the sun's rays, and so they left him to relax as they made their way up the 25 wooden steps leading to the corner of the Esplanade and Blickford Terrace in the shadow of the crippled children's home. It was around 7 p.m. on November the 30th, 1948, and these folks would be the last people to see the mysterious Summerton man while he was still alive. Now, only 30 minutes later, another pair of walkers starting along the beach, which was near Glenig and just south of Adelaide, if I butchered it, sorry, in South Australia, noticed that the prostrate figure must be dead drunk as he appeared obvious... Uh, <laughs> as he appeared obviously drunk and oblivious to the gathering mosquitoes. Sadly, it, would be long, it wouldn't be long before the insects would also take an unhealthy interest in him since in that last short space of time, as the sun finally dipped below the horizon, he had passed away. Further witnesses later came forward to tell detectives of a strange character gazing down upon the corpse from the top of the steps. Now, however... It was not until 6.30 a.m. on the morning of December the 1st that John Lyons and two other gentlemen on horseback established that the sleeping figure was actually dead. The police were soon called and Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean, who was to lead the initial investigation, carefully noted down the scene before him. Leaning against the seawall with his legs fully extended towards the sea and his feet casually crossed, the man, for all the world, looked as if he had simply fallen asleep. A cigarette precariously balanced on the collar of his elegant double-breasted jacket as if it had slipped from the corner of his mouth just as if he had dozed off. Having taken photographs of the body, and Ling decided to carry out a thorough search of the gentleman's possessions. A number of items were noted down and bagged up for evidence including a pair of cigarettes, a comb, chewing gum, and an unused train ticket. Now, suicide or murder? That was the question that initially was asked. You know, having gathered all the evidence available from an initial search, the detective had the body sent to John Burton Cleland, a leading pathologist at the time. At 1.5 meters tall, with broad shoulders and a small, slim waist, the man appeared to have been in good physical shape. However, the autopsy was to prove otherwise. Upon opening up the body, it soon became clear that something truly dreadful had happened to the mysterious man from the beach. Blood had mixed in with his last meal within the stomach, which was along the pharynx, doodlum, kidneys, and spleen, heavily congested. The gullet had ulcered 
and there was obvious signs of an acute drastic hemorrhage. This was clearly not a natural death, but could it have been a suicide? Cleveland thought not. The unknown man had been poisoned. So, sorry about butchering some of those words. I'm from East Tennessee. Now, they asked themselves, is this the scene of a crime? Was this a tragic accident? Was this a suicide? Now, let's go over some of the things we know about the case thus far. Number one, we had a witness, the watching man, remember? You know, during the initial, initial investigation, one witness came forward stating that he had ob observed a shadowy figure looking down upon the body from above the corner of the Espeland and Bickford Terrace. The character was never traced. A clue, a cigarette, an unlit cigarette, was found carefully balanced on the right collar of the unknown man's coat. Since it had not been lit, it was unlikely to have dropped out of his mouth while he was sleeping. It had it been placed there on purpose by the killer. Now, a clue. The Tamad Shoe Note. Now, journalist Frank Kennedy recognized from where the phrase had originally called the police with details of the Persian book of collected poems. This was found in the man's pocket. The unusual font helped pinpoint the exact edition they were looking for. Now, the personal effects. We have a half-empty packet of Wrigley Juicy Fruit Chewing Gum. That's an American connection, since this was a popular brand in the U.S. and was not sold in Australia at that time. Similarly, an aluminum comb was found on him. It was American in design. The 10.50 a.m. unused train ticket to Henley Beach must have been bought between 6.15 a.m. and 2 p.m. On, on November 30th. Only three such tickets were issued that day. A bus ticket was also discovered, which departed at 11.15 a.m. from opposite the railway station. Someone had replaced the Army Club cigarettes. Now, this is the pack of cigarettes they found. They were Army Club brand. They, the cigarettes inside the pack were not Army Club cigarettes. They were replaced with a more expensive brand called Ken Citas. Now, was this his choice? Or was it the work of the killer? That's odd. That that makes me. It goes back to that Breaking Bad when they put the rice and was going to put the rice in the cigarette or always hit it in the cigarette. Now the victim was the Summerton man. Is what he was called. The body was discovered leaning against the seawall. He had had he committed suicide, been poisoned, or died of asphyxia while dozing on the beach. Nobody knew. Another clue that was found was a stripped tie. Sorry, shit, the striped tie. The stripes on it, the tie worn by the unknown man sloped with a negative gradient as seen in fashion in the United States at the time. People in both Australia and the UK traditionally wear their stripes in the heart-to-sword position, thereby supporting the American connection. Now, we know that the Summerton man moved. At 7 p.m., witnesses saw the man move his right arm. It was later established that this was not the action of a man swatting away mosquitoes, but rather the Summerton man's last convulsion brought about by the poison coursing through his bloodstream. Sorry, I got some notes here. Now we talked about the book and the little passage that was that was in his pocket from this book. Now, 
tell me if you think this is a coincidence. Three years before the discovery of the Somerton Man, 34-year-old George Marshall from Singapore was found dead just across from Clifton Gardens in Ashton Park. He was discovered lying on his back as if fast asleep. Even more strange, a copy, I can't pronounce this, I'm sorry, of the Rubiyat Omar Kaham had been left open and carefully balanced on his chest. This is the same book that the little piece of paper had been cut out of and left in the Summerton man's pocket. Carefully balanced on his chest, George, the brother of Singapore's first chief minister, David Marshall, was thought to have committed suicide by ingesting poison. On August 15, 1945, the authorities carried out an inquest into his death. And under two weeks, under two weeks later, on August 28th, a woman by the name of Gwyneth Dorothy Graham, who had given testimony at the hearing, was found floating face downwards in her bathwater. Her wrist had been slit. That's not a coincidence. Now, the encrypted message in this this little phrase for this book, okay, five lines of the text discovered on the last page of the, almost tried, Ruyat of Omar Kahim had never been deciphered, and therefore it remains a tantalizing mystery to conspiracy theorists around the world. Initially thought to be a foreign phrase, cryptographers now believe the encrypted message is of English origin. In 2004, a retired detective suggested, suggested that the last line stood for it's time to move to South Australia, mostly Street, which would link the message to Jessica Thompson's address. And we'll get to that. Remember that name. Uh, linguists agree that it's probably English and more likely to be shorthand than code. So, and we'll get to that encrypted message here in just a minute. But, um, the Summerton man, the animal man had been poisoned. Now, they think probably with a soluble hypnotic or barbiturate, which would have caused the victim to vomit excessively after ingestion, there's no vomit present at the scene. The detective theorized that the man had been moved post-poisoning, therefore ruling out suicide. The couple walking on the beach had unwittingly witnessed his final death throes. The questions were many. The evidence was limited. Cleveland could estimate that the time of death was approximately 2 a.m. The man's hands and fingernails suggested he had not been a casual laborer, while his calf muscles indicated he had been a long-distance runner or possibly a dancer. His toes were unusually shaped, as if he had forced them into pointed shoes or ballet slippers. But Cleveland thought it was more likely that he had suffered from some kind of uh, disease or, or something of the, of the toes or feet. The fact that he carried no identification or wallet upon him indicated suicide. Not really. He could be a KGB spy. Um, now, when they examined his clothes, they discovered that the labels had been carefully removed. And that, that would be done to help hide or, or cover his tracks and where he was from. It was highly suspicious and not in keeping with the suicide theory. So with the lack of vomit and removal of identifying marks, all notions of suicide were abandoned. This man, whoever he was, had most likely been murdered and carefully placed on Summerton Beach, the Summerton Beach Sands. Now, less than a month later, a brown suitcase was discovered by the staff at the Adelaide Railway Station. Although all labels had been removed from it, it was quickly established that the case had been checked into the cloakroom on November 30th and it almost certainly belonged to the unknown man found on the beach. 
Detective Lyon Lean and his colleagues, Dave Bartlett and Lynn Brown, opened the suitcase to discover pajamas, a dressing gown and slippers, along with an electrician's screwdriver, a pair of sharpened scissors, a sharpened table knife, a stenciling brush, and a zinc square used to protect the knife. On removing a pair of trousers from the case, a scattering of sand fell out of the cuffs. A card neatly wrapped with orange wax thread was discovered that clearly linked the case to the dead body, as exactly the same thread had been used to mend the trousers worn by the victim. Once again, the majority of labels had been removed with the exception of a couple that displayed the name T. Keen, K-E-A-N-E, or T. Keen, K-E-A-N. A coat uh, revealed a link to the USA, as this was the only country manufacturing such feather stitching at the time, and the style matched those worn in the country. A set of paper and pencil had been packed in the suitcase, but no correspondence was discovered, which would have been an extremely useful find. Equally strange was the fact that there was no spare pairs of socks with the underpants and pajamas. The detectives were baffled and frustrated. More clues had been discovered, but they seemed to lead them round and round in circles, and having chased up every convincible lead, they appeared to be no further forward. Now, on June 17th, Cleveland concluded a thorough coroner's inquest. Most of the conclusions were speculation. The cleanliness of the victim's shoes strongly suggests that he had died elsewhere and been carried to the spot where the body was discovered. Now, this idea was in keeping with the lack of vomit where the body had been discovered. And further analysis also of the stomach content led Professor of Pharmacology Cedric Stanton Hick to believe that the man had ingested a cardiac glycoside such as digitalis or obtain, a highly toxic, sub, highly toxic substance. However, when it finally came to determining the cause of death, no one could be absolutely positive. The Australian police contacted the USA's FBI asking for help in identifying the corpse, but having consulted FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover, the agency was not able to find a fingerprint match for the man. A plaster cast of the unknown man's head and chest had also been taken before his burial on June 14, 1949 at the West Terrace Cemetery in Adelaide. However, one further clue would yield itself at the inquest, and it was to baffle the entire world. Now, the encrypted message that I told you about and the name, um, Jessica Thompson, I'll get to that. I kind of got jumped ahead of myself. Um, so I apologize for that. And we'll discuss that. I'm going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. All right, guys, we're back. Um, the investigation. Now, during an, uh, a detailed examination of the dead man's clothing, like we said, a small scrap of paper was discovered rolled up in the fob pocket of his trousers. The word Thomas Shude was printed on it in an unusual font. The evidence was photographed, released to the press. The mysterious clue was printed nationwide in all the papers. The words meaning finished or it is ended in Persian. They were soon identified as the last page of Edward Fitzgerald's The Rahaba of Omar Kaham, a collection of poems translated from Persian. It wouldn't be long before the exact copy from which the scrap had been torn was located. Now remember I told you that three years before that, another mysterious poisoning 
a body was found with that same book opened up on his chest. Now, in this man's pocket is a piece torn from the last page of the same book. Now, where the book had been found seems to have been lost over the years. The timing of its discovery is also a mystery, but the general consensus seems, consensus seems to be that a member of the public found it on the back seat of an unlocked car in Jetty Road, Glenegg, not far from where the body had been discovered. The scrap of paper was interesting and again raised the idea that the unknown man had committed suicide. Not really. I disagree with their investigation. Uh, but it was the book itself that instigated the authorities to call it an unparalleled mystery. Because this book contained a secret code, which gets back to that encryption. Five lines of code, all written in capital letters, were found in the back of the book. The second line had been scored through, suggesting a mistake on the part of the writer. But this has never been confirmed. Now, was this a foreign language, an encrypted message, or merely the ramblings of a madman? Specialists were brought in to decipher its meaning, but to this date, no satisfactory explanation has been given. Along with the mysterious code, detectives found a telephone number, and this proved to be more useful. Although the number X3239 was unlisted, it was quick, quickly traced back to a local resident by the name of Jessica Ellen Thompson. Jessica, also known as Joe, was a nurse who lived at 90A Glenick Street, no more than 400 meters away from Summerton Beach, where the body had been discovered. Now, Jessica Thompson denied any knowledge of the unknown man. She didn't know who he was or why he might have her phone number. She was fearful of any publicity and insisted that all records of her name be removed from the case. From this point on, a variety of pseudonyms were used, including the pet name Jetson, which had been used by her former co-workers. Detective Lean was not convinced that Justin was entirely truthful regarding her lack of regarding her no, a lack of knowledge of the body's identity. Once again, he pushed for information, and this time he showed her the plaster cast of the man's face made before the inquest. Her reaction was extraordinary. Paul Lawson, the creator of the cast, noted that having seen it, Jessica looked away and refused to so much as glance at it again. Now, Lean, on the other hand, noticed her sudden change in part. He later stated that she was so taken aback that he believed she was about to faint. However, she stuck to her story. She did confirm that during World War II, she had owned a copy of the Rubaha of Omaha, but told the investigators she had given it to a boyfriend, Alf Boxall. After the war, Alf had contacted her, but she was already engaged to Prosper Thompson and did not want to renew their friendship. She had not heard from him since. Could this be the man on the beach? The police were convinced that this was the break they had been waiting for, but unfortunately, it was not. In July of 1949, Alf Boxall was located working in a bus depot in Sydney. Although taken aback by the police interest, he was happy to show them his copy of the book, which had been signed. Jessica or Jetson, Jets, Jess, Jessen, I don't know how to pronounce that, by his then-girlfriend. He could think of no connection to the unknown man, and the police were at a loss once again. Case went cold. The body of the Summerton man was finally released and buried in Adelaide in, in a pitiful, sorry, in a pitiful multiple burial site. However, somebody cared because for years later, flowers started appearing on the grave, and to this day, it is unknown who the mourner was. 
A variety of suggestions were raised about the man's identity, including that he was a Swedish station worker, a seaman named Tony Reed, and later a worker on the steamship. I believe he was a KGB spy because there was said to have been nuclear uh, testing and, and different uh, uh, scientific type things going on around that area. Um, at least three people came forward uh, saying the body belonged to Robert Walsh, a 63-year-old woodcutter, but witnesses retracted their statement when they discovered the body lacked certain identifying scars. In 2009, Professor Derek Abbott from the University of Adelaide deciding to take up the challenge of cracking the Summertown mystery once and for all. Investigation covered further examination of the bizarre code, reanalysis of the poison, and another look at the evasive Justin. Sadly, Jessica Thompson had passed away in 2007, but her family proved to be far more uh, forthcoming. In May of 2009, Abbott called in uh, dental experts to analyze images of the Summerton men's teeth. They concluded that the unknown man had suffered from extremely rare genetic disorder known as hypodontia. Less than 2% of the population are affected with this condition, which leaves the mouth without incisors. The canine teeth grow directly next to the two front teeth, making this an easily identifiable disorder. Meanwhile, Hindenburg had identified another unusual trait. The Summerton man had a rare ear formation. This meant that his upper ear, upper ear hollow or simba, was larger than his cavum or lower ear hollow. This anatomical feature occurs in only 1 or 2% of the population. Now, back in 1946, Jessica Thompson had given birth to a baby boy who she named Robin. He had two distinctive facial features, no incisors, and strangely shaped ears. So he, this little boy that Jessica had, had the same two features that Summerton Man had. That's strange. Now, the chances of Robin, the little baby, having the same ear formation and hypondias as Summerton Man were only uh, 10 million and 1 in 20 million, respectively. I'm sorry, were 1 in 10 million and 1 in 20 have both of them. Robin passed away in 2009, was survived by his ex-wife, Roma Egan, and his daughter, Rachel. Abbott sent a photograph of the Summerton Man to Roma and asked if she knew of anyone who resembled the image. Roma did not hesitate. The Summerton Man looked spook, very spookily like her late ex-husband, Robin. Could Robin have been the love child of Jessica and the Summerton Man, but passed off as the son of Prosper Thompson? It was an extremely strong possibility DNA testing would, of course, prove it one way or the other. But in 2011, Attorney General John Roll refused permission to exhume the body of the Summerton Man as it was not deemed to be in the public's interest. So who was the Summerton Man? No one knows. Who killed the Summerton Man? No one knows. Are the clues strange? Very much so. Is that book strange? Very much so. So who... Were the suspects? Three suspects that come up are Jessica Thompson. Now some suspect that the ex-lover of the summer was the ex-lover of the Summerton man, was the culprit. Now could Jessica Thompson, a nurse working in Adelaide, have been a Soviet spy with whom he had a father and child before his death? Had she poisoned an ex-lover? But investigators had no evidence to charge her with any crime, so she was dropped as a suspect. I feel like she was not not truthful it's also now what about a secret spy the vast mystery surrounding the summerton man has led to the theory 
that he could have been a spy who whose death was the result of an espionage operation to remove him from the covert unit. Perhaps the undeciphered code and rare poison point to a hit undertaken by an undercover agency or an unknown chemist. Given the nature of the victim's death and the rare poisonous chemical found in the Summerton man's post-mortem, chemists have always been persons of interest in this case. Could a chemist with access to some unknown or uncommon and dangerous drug have led a personal vendetta against the Summerton man? Now, the aftermath, after all the, the investigation had went on and the case went cold, it gets hot, it gets cold. Many, many years later, you know, by 1949, eight so-called positive identifications had taken place, but all turned out to be incorrect. This had increased to 251 by 1953, okay? Now, more recently, in November of 2013, Jessica's daughter, Kate Thompson, agreed to give an interview on 60 Minutes. And Kate confirmed that her mother was indeed Jetson, but had not been truthful to the detectives all those years ago. She claimed that her mother had admitted to her that she had known the Summerton man all along, and even more shockingly, she had not been the only one to know his true identity. Apparently, her mother believed that a higher level than the police force was already aware of his name and business, that in itself was dramatic stuff, but did Kate have any idea what his business might have been? Now, Kate fervently believes that both the Summerton man and her own mother were spies working for the Russians. Although this was only speculation, she had some highly interesting circumstantial evidence to back up her claim. Having given up nursing, Jessica has started teaching English to incoming migrants. Kate stated that her mother spoke fluent Russian, but never explained from where or why she had learned to do so. She also had a deep interest in the concept of communism, much to the horror of her husband Prosper. The rare form of poison used to dispose of the Summerton man, the strange, undeciphered code, the refusal of Jessica to acknowledge the relationship, plus the total lack of identifying possessions, all led uh, to the tantalizing thought of a spy ring. Interestingly, for, former South Australian Chief Superintendent Lynn Brown believed that the man had originally heralded from a country in the Warsaw Pact he had come to this conclusion during the 1940s due to the fact that the police could do nothing to establish an identity, and the Cold War was underway. Derek Abbott, on the other hand, is less inclined to follow the spy ring theory. As he himself stated, you don't have to be a spy to be secretive. His conclusion is far more grounded, believing that the man was probably no more than a wheeler dealer involved in the black marking, having attempted to reconnect with his lost love. He had gone for a snooze on the beach where he died of asphyxia. A great deal less exciting. I guess I guess it's possible nonetheless. I don't agree with that. There's too many other clues to point to the spy ring side, I think. However, just when everybody thought that the most likely truth was disappointingly dull, a new piece of speculation reared its head and began a fascinating addition to Australia's unparalleled mystery. In February of 2017, an online identity by the name of Gordon332 posted the latest suggestion uh, of the Summerton Man. During 1948, Major Pavel Anovich Fedishmov 
of the KGB was seen boarding a ship bound for Russia. He was never seen again. Known photographs of Fedosmov strongly suggest he had the same unusual ear formation. Apparently, Gordon 332 has more evidence to follow. That's very interesting. Could it have been that Major Pavel Anovich Fedosmov, the KGB? I think it was definitely KGB. And I think that case three years prior was attached to it. I think that book has a lot to do with it. I think the cipher has a lot to do with it. I think that the removal of the, the tags from the clothes was something that was always done. But I believe the different cigarettes in the pack was how they, uh, how he ingested the poison. Listen, Google this case. Watch the thing on History Channel. Find out more information about it. It's a very interesting case. I have butchered some words, and I'm sorry. I apologize for being a hillbilly, but I've done the best I could. This is The Summerton Man, and this is The Weekly Podcast.